the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. Welcome to the Forward Together podcast. I'm Jared Dean and I'm joined today by Paul Gosling. How are you, Paul? Hi, Gerard. Fine as usual. Good stuff. So this is our podcast where we're asking a range of people from civic and political life here in Northern Ireland four questions. We're looking uh, to address how we increase the civic voice here, how we create a more shared and integrated society, how we deal with the past and how we address the constitutional question. So forward-focused conversations. Paul, and who did you meet to have a forward-focused conversation with for this episode? Okay, the interviewee today is Aideen McGinley, who used to be one of the most senior civil servants in Northern Ireland and is now a trustee of Carnegie UK and also she's co-chair of the Embedding Wellbeing Project in Northern Ireland. Okay, and Aideen someone that has had connections with Hollywell for years and years and it's great to hear from her. She starts the conversation around the importance of community spirit and community leadership um, when it comes to looking at the issues that we were talking about. Yeah, Aideen and I had this conversation really because she's saying, well, one of the things that enabled Northern Ireland to survive during the Troubles was the strength of community spirit. And Mm. the point that I put to her was that it's great to have strong communities, providing those communities work together and have relationships with each other. But if you actually have communities that uh, separate, that actually don't have those connections, then how does that take us forward? And that's a large part of that early conversation that we have today. Mm -hmm. She also talks about the value and the importance of finding common purposes for a community to work on or communities to come together on. That's right. I I think that uh, in saying that's really how you do that, how Mm. you bring those different communities together by having this common purpose. And what I also thought that was very interesting and something that other interviewees haven't really talked about is, you know, and also, of course, she was uh, a chief executive of a, a local authority in Northern Ireland in the distant past. And she's talking about the role of councils and through those about how community planning perhaps can be a basis for civic engagement. And I thought that was a very interesting perspective that we've not really heard elsewhere. Yeah. And one of the other things, and, you know, this is such a, a repeated theme, isn't it, Gerard? You know, she's saying the importance of words and to choose our words carefully. And she's saying specifically because of the difficulties in the past with the Civic Forum, when we're talking about future civic engagement, we need to find a new name for it. Don't go back to the past of the Civic Forum. Okay. Well, let's hear the conversation that you had with Aideen now. I'm joined now by Aideen McGinley, who is the chair of Carnegie UK and also co-chair of the Wellbeing for Northern Ireland. Chair, uh, a trustee of Carnegie UK and yeah. chair of the Embedding Wellbeing Project in Northern Ireland. So, okay. Uh, the chair of U- uh, Carnegie UK, interestingly, is Sir John Elveridge, who was the former Permanent Secretary in Scottish Government. Um, so again, the whole enabling state work uh, is very well led by him. Okay, thank you. Um, heading straight into it, Aideen, how do, how do we strengthen civil society? I mean, I think one of the things, maybe in my old age, in inverted commas, um, it's about going back to our roots. Uh, it's about the peace that we had in, you know, almost at the worst of times, uh, that very strong community spirit that uh, you know, prevailed in Northern Ireland. Uh, I've just finished reading The Milkman, which was hard going, but it actually reminded me of the depth of the impact in, in, in communities and at community level 
of just the, the whole political tensions. And I myself lived on the border. I've lo- always actually lived on a border, uh, all my days. And but there was some sort of essence there of community and people wanting peace and people working towards it. And I was recently at an event um, honouring uh, George Mitchell. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and at that event, uh, there was a lovely tribute made to him by Dawn Purvis, where she quoted Billy Hutchinson saying he listened us out of it. And that, you know, they'd taken five years um, to genuinely have someone like George Mitchell listening and letting them hear each other speak. And I think that's what we've lost, that, you know, that sense of us as a community, because we were beleaguered in some way and there was a common purpose through to people starting to build, talk, discuss, listen, building trust. And I think, unfortunately, we've sort of fallen off a cliff edge where we're nearly back to having to start to do that again. But the problem with what happened in the past, in a way, apart from all the other problems, was that those were very isolated communities and there wasn't yeah. connections between those communities, yeah. weren't connections across the traditional divide and weren't even connections between communities on the, within the same tradition. Mm-hmm. So the question is how you build those insular communities into a broader... Yeah, absolutely, community. absolutely. And that was, um, it was sort of to have us to hold at that time. Yeah. Um, and a lot of, I mean, I would have worked in local government in the, in the 70s. And it was the work that I saw done at grassroots community level, uh, cross-border. I would have been involved in ICBAN, the Irish Central Border Area Network, and always remember a very funny conversation at a council meeting where they were talking about black heifers at Sligo Mart and how a DUP councillor had gone to Sligo Mart to get his black heifer, but he was he couldn't he said that he never crossed the border. You know, those sorts of anecdotes. But there was there was this sense of right, if you can get strength at that level and then start to build people's confidence where they're working to, alongside each other. And there was a lot of work, Community Relations Council, um, Hollywell, uh, case in point, uh, you know, organisations like that throughout Northern Ireland who created the space for people to come together and realise they had more in common than they had to divide them. And also getting to the point where culture, uh, and I'm a very strong believer that it's about working with young people, it's about education and culture plays to me uh, I really, I, I feel city of culture here in Derry went to the depths of the, the name issue, for example, and you look at the bands accord that came out of that, where the bands from across the music divide, the common purpose was music, and the respect and trust they had through music allowed them then to address some really fundamental issues that to me are one of the best practice examples out there. So how do we get people back onto a space where they realise, okay, I think, and I know personally, I've retracted back into my position, um, and I and I'm and I wasn't, you know, um, you know, you you do start thinking along those um, community sectarian lines again, um, and you know, you look at the issues, but there's also a groundswell of young people out there that don't remember. I mean, when I talk to my grandchildren about uh, our house at home. Uh, we lived beside the customs in Strabane and the house was blown up eight times because the customs, every time the customs was blown up. And they think I'm telling stories. You know, they go, no, granny. And then they talk about, you know, they're in a very different space. I think that's the other thing. The context we're in is so different. Digitally, globally. I mean, we're now a tiny problem in a, in a, on a huge world stage, whereas before we were a disproportionate 
uh, attention from the, the rest of the world. I mean, certainly there's been a lack of focus, and that probably plays into what happened with Brexit, lack of awareness of yeah. the history of difficulties within Northern Ireland. But we still come back to this problem that, yeah, we have, in a sense, a breakdown of the traditional communities, which is actually happening not just in Northern Ireland, but, you know, as you say, with social media, etc., it creates different types of communities. But even within merging out of the troubles, we didn't have those connections between the communities mm. that solidified the peace, did we? I don't know. You I think, think we did? I think, I think there were, there's some good examples out there of, you know, where people did work together. Mm. I mean, I, I live in Enniskillen. Um, I born and reared in, in, I always say, born in Derry, reared in Tyrone, living in Fermanagh. Um, Enniskillen is a good case in point. I came to work there. I worked there in the 70s, came back to work there just the year after the bomb. And it took us eight years to clear the rubble off the bomb site in Enniskillen. It was so sensitive. Uh, there was huge work done. It's about community leadership. It's about... Uh, public servants, there was one particular man, David Bolton, you may know David, uh, social worker, working closely with each of the families, negotiating space. Jerry Burns played a key role at the time as well. Um, so some of this is about having people at the most sensitive points, quietly, gently, and you know, in, in a very sensitive way, moving people out of the trauma. But then you look at the, the most recent example in Enniskillen, where last year, the memorial piece came up again and the whole thing blew. But again, the church and other leaders stepped in, Leila's death and Derry. The people rose up and said enough for us. Mm. I mean, I think... I mean, clearly there are good practice examples. Yeah, yeah. But it, does it go beyond the good practice? I mean, you know, because we still live in very, in, you know, insulated, separate communities. Yeah. Mostly people go to school, which are not integrated schools. Yeah. Well, the thing being, I think what I, the two examples I described there show that at the bottom line is people don't want to go back. Mm. Um, but it's how, and, and some of this is about us all going back as individuals. Mm. What, what are our beliefs? What are our sensitivities? What do we want for our future generation? And um, so there's an element of that that maybe is more individualistic now because of the world we're living in than it would have been even years ago. Um, because you know, women, the women's movement, for example, was a huge common denominator across Northern Ireland through the Troubles. And women and matriarchs in those community societies were usually the ones doing, quietly doing the community work, but also coming together. I mean, I remember being associated uh, very much on the margins with the, the Women's Coalition being developed within six weeks. Mm. Um, it then doing itself out of business because it felt it, its aim was to get women into politics, not to be a political party. But of course, one of the things that came out of the Women's Coalition was the Civic Forum, yes. which isn't yes. seen to have been successful no. and didn't, didn't continue. So... No. Is that something we should return to? The thing about the Civic Forum was, I think at the time, and I, I mean, I, I knew the chair at the time, wonderful man who put an awful lot of effort in, um, I think the Civic Forum was always seen by the politicians as a threat. It wasn't democratically elected. They were. What mandate, what right had they to second guess? I think if it had been handled differently, where the politicians, um, with some sensitivity, saw it as an important sounding board for them, uh, not an undermining of. So how should it be instructed then? Um, I think, I, I mean, interestingly, I was at a, an event in Leeds in May, a uh, Four Nations event with four parts of the civil service across the UK, and there was a very interesting workshop on Northern Ireland. 
um, where a professor from Queen's University put forward the point that the Good Friday Agreement is a very good agreement. You know, it's an international agreement that took five years to negotiate that's multi-stranded based on principle of consent and that in fact he felt that in the current Brexit devolution situation it's something the rest of the UK should look at as a model of best practice. So there's a piece about returning to it and I did after he said it. I actually went back and took it out and read it again and I thought, you know, it actually is, it is a solid framework. But then you overlay the relationships and you overlay the people and the leadership in particular. And I think what we're missing at the minute is the leadership. Um, you would need to get... I mean, I'll give you an example from work I've been doing with Carnegie on wellbeing in Northern Ireland for, because for me that's a common denominator. Uh, we started out on the wellbeing agenda back in 2013. It had been uh, very successfully implemented by the Scottish Government and indeed... Um, one of their senior politicians who remain nameless said he says we never expected to be in power for longer than three months so we thought to hell we'll do this and we got on with it and it worked and they're still in power SNP SP, that's right I thought I got it wrong there um, and he we got a convened a conference in Belfast standing room only about measuring what matters uh, and out of that came the round table. The round table worked over a period of a year. Very interesting group of people, not the usual suspects, people from business, people from community, people, you know, the whole system. And that's what's been missing in Northern Ireland to some extent, is sort of like a whole systems approach. Um, and that reported to government. But what it did was, because Carnegie had a convening power that was neutral, I co-chaired with Martin Evans, the chief executive at the time. Martin was able to deal with the politicians in Northern Ireland on a very separate professional way. I was able to deal with the system because I had come from the system. So I knew the central government very, fairly, very well. And in two parallel tracks, we were able to work together and get ministers cross-party with Sinn Féin DUP support. We then had cross-party support to get an outcomes-based programme for government, which is the current draft programme for mm. government. So it's an example of it can be done. So you think that would be a structure for civic forum? I don't quite see yeah. how that works into the civic forum. Well, what it would be is that you would take the draft program for government, mm. and you would the element where there has to be involvement from the people who's in the room. There's a there's an analogy from Future Search that says it are in who are in the room. You know, it's people with authority, uh, people. Uh, I'm trying to spell are people. Uh, with the expertise, people with the resources, uh, people who are in need, a need being who it impacts on. And I, I am trying to remember, and I can't remember the analogy now, but we sometimes do the top bit. We get the authority and the resources and whatever. Uh, we've done a piece of work with the politicians, signed up by all the parties that's sitting there. The civil service are keeping it warm. Uh, they're doing their best. Um, they've put out the outline plan and they're... Uh, and I'll come to it in a minute about local government um, so there's a piece of work that was negotiated and has been broadly accepted because then you look when Carnegie finished that piece of work we were actually delighted OECD were working at the same time it's held up as a model of practice uh, Wales have a legislative approach Scotland is very much framework approach ours was very much about creating a vision and a common ground so we've got it what do we do with it when we've no, po no politicians in there Go to where democracy is, local government. Community planning has rationalised it down to the 11. So it's manageable. All 11 of those community plans are uh, aligned to the draft programme for government. So you have a point there where there's a commonality. 
Um, what Carnegie did was they came in and we did, we invited all 11 councils and all 11 applied and we're putting extra resource into three of them and in particular we're looking at co-production um, so that it is about working with people to determine what plans will be and we're talking about shared leadership um, and then there's other elements about common resourcing. That's an experiment that's happening as we speak and I've been very impressed at local government and I'm seeing central government almost viewing with envy the way uh, and trying to be as supportive as they can within the limitations they have of making community planning a vehicle. So are you saying that you think that some type of civic forum should merge through community planning through local government? Well, whether first of all, I wouldn't call it a civic forum mm. because I think that's tainted mm. and people will automatically, uh, and I've learned too much of that in my own professional life, you know, don't try and reinvent wheels that didn't work at the time. Um, I think it's about um, getting some sort of community voice, a, a whole systems piece that acts as a conduit, uh, maybe on the return. Currently, for me, and something I witnessed in my working life because I worked in central and local government for almost 40 years, was the gap between the two and the arrogance of the top meeting the, you know, the, um, how would I put it, the, well, total under-resourcing of local government here, you know, it's not uh, the same powers as other parts of the UK, but there's a real, it's a real uh, opportunity to touch community at community level. And there's a confidence growing there because as they're getting the community planning into place, they're now talking with authority because they're hearing the community voice. So if there's some conduit through the election, So it's sort of empa empowering community planning, yeah, basically. I think so. And that that way, if you can get the voices coming up through the eleven that there's a peace between local and central government where there's a voice there that the politicians will have at the top won't see as a threat but will actually see as organic. Um, and I think some of what's happening is the shared leadership and the co-production piece is people are working together to prioritise, to get their plans, to um, articulate what's important to them locally and it's unique to each area. And the leadership piece is about all the different agencies all the different bodies, not just the councils, this isn't about councils only, genuinely coming together, starting to pull resources, starting to say, we can't do everything, so what is it we need to do in this area? And that's really, it's very nascent and, and, and what's happening. And you're finding that the community planning process isn't just dominated by the major parties in each area? No, um, because again, what I found in my own work in life was the bread and butter issues unite all the parties. When it's uh, you know health or education or employment or you know societal well-being and even culture, which sometimes is the piece where they test the divisions, you can get something to, at a local level. Now it's not easy. It takes a lot of leadership from the officers in local government that I think is totally underestimated, um, and it takes a lot of trust uh, at, a, at a political level. You know trying to build up and, and it, for example in Derry here I know that they, they do they really do put a lot of effort into making cross-party leadership a, a heart of what they do um, and from in my, in my past the one plan was an example of where you can actually create an integrated plan and go from 485 priorities down to 11 and that's still coming through on the community planning piece so for me it's not don't kill this uh, the councils are being very good at saying this is not the panacea don't kill it by making it that but let it happen and uh, put resources in. i mean the one thing that carnegie found quite shocking was there was nobody else out there helping the councils with community planning there were no resources going in 
there you know they were thrown the legislation and sort of told to get on with it we don't know what this looks like so our work i mean it's a relatively modest sum of money we're putting in but we're bringing international expertise they've been exposed they were in new york before christmas and met uh, best practice examples from the US they've been over in Wales looking at the legislative base we're trying to bring the best practice into community planning in Northern Ireland and I really have confidence in the councils the other thing that I think is brilliant is the three that we selected uh, there's a, an advisory group that did so all 11 councils bid uh, all 11 we're working with all 11 we're working with NILGA so we're working through the local go local government and councillors uh, we're working with Solus and the chief executives, and we're keeping uh, supporting. It's the support that people are so grateful for, um, because all too often in Northern Ireland, you know, you're thrown something and left to get on with it. How do we build up that those modules of support? And what I find really interesting is from central government, we have the departments coming to us to say how can we help. And yet they, they can't seem to sometimes go straight to local government and say, how can we help? Because local government say, oh, go, go away, you're the big boys. So there's that sort of convening piece in the middle. Um, and so we've been able to sort of tailor working with the Department of Communities, for example, uh, and, and NILGA. We're doing a joint conference before Christmas on um, resourcing. And, um, you know, it's this thing about uh, that they're, we're not seeking it, but we're, we're, we're a hub. Um, so how do you create that conduit? Now, whether a civic forum, I'm trying to think of an alternative name, you know, whether it is something that encompasses community planning, a community planning... Um, and would it emerge voice. as something similar to the Citizens' Assemblies in the South? It could do. It could do. I mean, I think that's a really interesting model. And I, I, I was delighted uh, to see, you know, that um, there is attempts here in Northern Ireland to do something similar. I think it's difficult in the current climate to do it. But I don't see why not. And I think, you know, uh, again, um, Carnegie were involved in the way in the South on a number of the civic conversation pieces. Um, and so sometimes if we can help bring that, you know, that I think what's going to naturally come out with 18 months of, for this work, what's going to naturally come out of it is how do you keep that citizen's voice active and alive? And I think if you get that voice far enough down the chain that is close to the ground, it removes the politics of but it. But there has to be a purpose behind it, doesn't there it? There has, there has. And it, could, it should be, and indeed uh, audit office papers on performance management, the usual system, systemic response to all this states that, you know, there has to be oversight of, if we're saying draft programme for government, you've got all these uh, outcomes-based uh, outputs now, who's going to say, from a public point of view, yeah, that's the ones we want. Yeah, you're working. Who are they reporting to? And that comes community planning up and draft programme for government down. I think there's a piece of the jigsaw there that a citizen's voice is programme for government meeting community planning and are, is this what we want to see? Okay, moving on a bit. I mean, how, how do we create a more shared and integrated society in Northern well, Ireland? Well, you mentioned education earlier. And I mean, I think everybody would say, I, I personally... I've been um, a trustee of the Fermanagh Trust and they've done a lot of the work around the um, shared education agenda because I think in integrated education has been here for a long time and it's really, really important and valuable piece of jigsaw, but it hasn't taken off in the same way um, that I think anybody, everybody had hoped it would. And our, the complexity of our education system is ridiculous. I think, ironically, economic factors are now driving education. Uh, in a direction that many of them, you know, uh, were happy to sit in splendid isolation. So there's there's that piece. 
Um, and I think even the whole context, digital, global, etc., is also driving it. But for me, the shared education model was a really interesting one. I had grandchildren who've been beneficiaries of it. Um, and I think it allows people still in their space uh, to be allowed to come out and see who else is in that space. So um, it's things like that, uh, you know, and there is money now, the Department of Education are... And, and you think money. the shared model works? Because I've seen criticisms yeah. of Scotland where, you know, basically people looked after the windows at the other schools rather right. than actually sharing their lives together at school. No, I, I mean, I've witnessed it. I've seen my grandchildren have been with the kids from the school down the street. I have been in the supermarket and they're going, hello so-and-so, and I'm saying, oh, who's that in, the, in your class? No, they're at such-and-such such a school. You know, so I'm only giving personal mm. tangibles. Um, I think the other thing that's been a lot of attention been given and um, uh, the early years movement have been fabulous mm. on doing some shared education, shared work. Um, and we, I mean, I remember when I was a child, and this is, like, I'm not even going to say many years ago, but it's well over half a century, as my grandson reminded me, um, I remember my best friend was a Protestant and lived in the main street in Stravan. And when we get, got to four, me asking, why can't she come to my school? Mm. You know, and it, it, it was, and that's how long ago that is. And she's, you know, still a friend today, to today. But I think there's, there's a piece about, you've got the early years and there's some really good work there. Really, Siobhan Fitzpatrick has been fabulous in the work she's been doing on that front. So Siobhan, Siobhan Fitzpatrick, um, who is the early years uh, chief exec, she's just been, in fact, she's probably due to retire shortly, but she's been a powerhouse around early years education in North. Talks all over the world uh, about how you work with young people and, you know, as profit in their own country sometimes. Um, and, you know, Siobhan's been doing some really interesting work um, on just getting that. It's, it is, it's about, you know, the mothers, the families, mm. that's an age where you can get uh, them coming together around the mutual activities for young kids. So we and should look much more about preschool rather than simply leaving it to school. Oh yes, I think you have to invest from the beginning, and you know there's a lot. There's still a lot of the playgroups in Northern Ireland. I've, oh, I mean, I know playgroups that have been around for forty years, and they're still going strong. <clears throat> Excuse me, and they're cross community in nature, and that cross community feeds back into, you know, the literally the community hall what it's used for the fundraising the parents knowing each other um you know and the, the religious piece doesn't come into it and there's been some lovely examples now i'm not sure of the actual locations but there was a, a an interesting piece uh, about a year ago i think it was in the lock gall direction where a protestant primary school was in danger of um a protestant play school i beg your pardon was in danger of folding because of numbers um and so they had to let go of their premises and they ended up using the gaelic uh, hall free of charge for the year till they got themselves sorted and then kids from the Gaelic club started to come and it's now a combined uh, play school because of the numbers etc you know so there's it's sometimes little simple things like that there where people are open to it doesn't matter that it's a Gaelic club that I'm, the Protestant primary school feeder class are coming to hey, look what happens and then the schools get together I'm not, not simplistic about it um, but I think we have an opportunity coming up with particularly finances in school. There's hardly a school in Northern Ireland now that does not operate on a deficit, and that has to come to a head. Um, and numbers, uh, you know, whilst our population is growing, uh, the numbers, the range of subjects. I'm a and of course the demography is changing. So okay. although the population's increasing, it's for some older. schools, the feeder 
population totally. isn't, is That's declining right. rapidly. That's right. And when you get to secondary and grammar level, the kids are not getting the choice of subjects. Yes. Um, things like the arts, languages, all of that's disappearing at A level. I, th I think that's a very important point to stress, that actually when you get to sixth form, because of the, the number of schools, uh, none of the schools is able to offer complete choice. And even Absolutely. though they have theoretically have arrangements often with other schools to partner, those partnership arrangements don't always work. That's right. I mean, ironically, I'm a governor of school in Enniskill, and we always worked on a shared, like my son's in his mid-30s now, he would have gone to Petora for German, uh, vice versa, they'd have come, you know, they would have shared. And so there was actually an organic shared piece. Mm, but it's very difficult to timetable, of course. But it's schools. a nightmare. It is, absolutely. And I, I've, I've been shocked at the amount of... Sub the other thing is you've got also further education coming into play. So a lot of the young people want to do more technical-oriented subjects. That costs schools mm. to do. Um, but to hold on to your A-level students, you're having to let them go to the an inverted commas tech. I have no problem with that particularly, but I think we start to have to look at a holistic way of educating our young people. It has to be the young person, what their talents and skills are and what they need from the curriculum. And whether actually we should be looking towards sixth form colleges yeah. rather than sixth yeah. forms within the schools yeah. where they don't offer enough exam choices. Yeah, absolutely. And then you start to get, if you've lost the kids at a secondary grammar level, you actually start to get them back together before mm. they start going into a university setting where again they're in, back into a more neutral environment. One of the other big challenges is how we deal with the past. I mean, how do you think oh. we should approach that? I, I, I always quote John Paul Lederach, who I'm sure you've heard of. He's a wonderful writer. Um, his parents would have worked on the Peace Line in Belfast in the early Troubles. He's a Mennonite uh, based in Denver. And he came over. We did the first ever peace conference in Fermanagh oh goodness me, way back in the 70s. And I remember having Sinn Féin and DUP councillors, the PSNI, you know, a whole range of people. And John Paul spoke to that conference. And it's it's one of those things, I've been to many conferences in my life, but he stands up and he has this particular turn of phrase where he says, it's not about forgive and forget. It's about remember and change. And that has driven me in anything I've done in a cross-community basis that, you know, we can't ask people, look, just forgive people for doing that and forget about it. That's not human. You know, we're all human. But it's about remember it um, in, in, a, in, a, in a, a, I don't know, a sustained, supported, targeted way. And then change so that it doesn't happen to someone else again. And for me, um, there's a lot in, in that one phrase so you know, how should we remember? Well, I think, first of all, I think we're actually facing a crisis at the moment. One of the reasons we're in the chasm we're in is that a lot of people of my era who would have been involved in the early troubles and right through it and worked through it, now are coming to retirement age where all of a sudden, you know, the, it, people kept busy. People, people lived their lives. They created the opportunities for their kids and their grandkids and they got on with life and they were on a treadmill and it kept them going. Now people are getting time and space to think. I think an awful lot of the trauma is coming back out again. Mm. Um, I was talking to somebody recently who said there's a 22-year gap. Uh, they'd done some work um, on um, victims and trauma, and they said they're finding this... Um, I, I mean, I don't know, I haven't got the um, theoretical basis of it, but they're finding people, it's been 22 years, and all of a sudden people are coming and saying, I have a problem. Mm -hmm. um, and I think some of it's about we haven't let ourselves remember 
you know, and we are coming to a point now where in fact some of the political chaos we're in is making us remember and retract back to, our, you know, and working through it. And surely that means that we need to invest much more in therapy services, counselling totally, services. Totally. Mental health in Northern Ireland is abominable. I'm, I'm involved in a mental health charity and it is shocking. Um, the levels of suicide, particularly young men, um, the just the, the waiting lists, the reliance on voluntary activity, um, the, I mean, the, the issues people are facing, you know, that with just good therapy. I mean, I, I was at a conference recently in Whitehall around the Embed and Wellbeing piece, and they were using the example about Northern Ireland being the happiest place in, in the UK. And I said, yes, and it's the highest number of people on antidepressants. Yeah, and, and a lot of these things depend on definitions, oh, don't totally. they? Because if people are thinking, well, I'm so pleased that people aren't killing them, exactly. killing each other around me, exactly. and therefore I am happy, I'm happy, that doesn't necessarily yeah. mean that they're content Absolutely. or that they've got a strong mental well-being. Absolutely. I think the biggest crisis in our health service in Northern Ireland is mental health. But there's also another dimension to this, I would suggest, which is class-based, which is in the same way that typically it is uh, parents who are well off whose kids get into the grammar schools and do well out of the schooling system. Similarly, it's the better off people that can afford to go for private sector counselling services, leaving large numbers of people from okay. poorer families without access because the waiting lists are too long to, to get access. Totally, totally. I mean, I, I'm in the happy position, you know, well, not happy. My kids all did very well at university. They're all my, my two sons are living, one in the States and one in Scotland, and they'll never be home. That's the other thing that I think is a real tragedy because mm, there's mm. a whole leadership piece there that we're missing. I'm very lucky to have a daughter who has stayed and she's a GP. The stress she's under and coping with the people that you've just described. In fact, she's involved because in there's very long waiting lists, totally. very long waiting totally. times. That's right. There's very restricted access because yeah. you won't get very many hours of counselling, which doesn't necessarily resolve problems. Whereas if you can afford to pay, yeah. there's still a waiting list, but you can, you can access the you services. Can. You can, you can, and it's it's how um, you know the, the charity that I'm involved in is exactly that. It's uh, to buy counselling hours. And we have a list. The irony is we've been so successful that we're busier than we ever were because people now know with the stigma has been removed. Uh, people now know where to come for help. Um, our, the, the NHS men, mental health services are just, forget about it. Mm. Uh, the waiting lists there are just ridiculous. In mm. fact, people are under more stress if they're there. Um, we're trying to shorten those. We're working with GPs. We're doing a lot of work. Uh, and GPs are the core. I mean, there needs to be investment in GP services to support the GPs. Medical school in Derry has to happen, for mm. example, in the West. Mm. It's, it's hugely... Uh, that's going to take years before you... Yeah. It well, five years. Yeah. Five years from start to finish, you will start to see an impact yes. on the availability of, of... And the GPs need to be able to plug into then the voluntary sector. Mm. I mean, and there's brilliant counselling services have been here in Derry for, and, and all over Northern Ireland. Um, there, there's a huge unnamed mass of people who are keeping people alive, you know, literally. But we're short of GPs, we're short of consultants, and of course we're losing significant number of senior staff through Brexit, where they're yeah. returning to other EU countries. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, in a sense, we're not possibly only re replacing those we're losing rather than exactly. increasing the we're, supply. Uh, exactly. A perfect storm, actually. Mm. You mm. know, and, and in one way, ironically, when you put it like that, that's what people are worried about. 
this is why the politics I, I one of the dangers of, of our political situation here in Northern Ireland at the minute is the apathy because people are so busy with getting on with their daily lives and coping with things like mental health issues or elderly parents or you know getting their kids reared keeping their jobs I think we've all maybe gone inwards again and we're quite an individualistic yeah apathy is an interesting word though because I mean when I spoke to Martin McGill a few days ago he was saying it wasn't really apathy it was in a sense perhaps to reinterpret what he was saying it was it people weren't voting that didn't mean they were apathetic about the system or the process but perhaps they felt frustrated and absolutely Apathy is too easy an excuse. Um, I think it's that people feel, what, what are they voting for? There was nothing there that would get them out to act. In fact, I was away for the last two elections. And for the first time in my life, I didn't. I was too late to get the postal vote. And I didn't vote. And I didn't feel sorry about it because I thought to myself, what, what would I have voted? You know. On the other hand, in European elections, we had a much higher turnout than yeah, previous elections. Yeah. So. And that's because of Brexit. And I think yeah. there is this general... Northern Ireland do recognise the threat. Which Brexit leads us breaks. into the constitutional conversation about mm. how we discuss the context of Northern Ireland, about whether it should continue to be within the United Kingdom or whether it should be a part of a reunited Ireland. I mean, how do we have that conversation in ways that don't alienate people, don't create new tensions? I mean, what's fascinating is that I wouldn't have believed even five years ago that we would be having a conversation about a united Ireland, potentially united Ireland, so soon and being taken so seriously. You know, I thought this is something that I may not live to see or whatever. Um, I also didn't uh, anticipate, and I'm sure many others didn't, the, the complete breakup of the United Kingdom. And I think the UK have underestimated um, that word united. Uh, that, you know, because you see Wales increasingly becoming much stronger. It was always the, the least of the three nations in terms of wanting separatism. It's starting to go its own way because it's getting a sense of what devolution brings and its own powers. And they've done some brilliant work on future generations legislation and so on and leading edge environmental issues. Scotland's case in point. Um, you know, and ironically, Northern Ireland sort of caught between the two because it's it's got this tug from the south um, and, and, you know, the, separ- the physical separation from the rest of the UK. And the rest of the UK doesn't care anymore about Northern Ireland. Do you know, there isn't this sense of, um, does it really matter? I, that's what I feel that, you know, I get a lot of people saying to me about, oh, Northern Ireland. They, in fact, if anything, we're seen to be the one that's creating a lot of the problems. Well, of course, the other thing is that people in England typically will have been to Wales, will have been to Scotland. Actually, comparatively few from England have visited Northern Ireland mm. for any extended period anyway. True, true. And, you know, some, quite a few of them still think we are Ireland. And would think of it in that in that way. So how do we have that con- constitutional conversation within Northern Ireland in ways that are friendly, amicable? That is a real. I I don't know. I, I mean, and I usually do attempt an answer at most things, and I am an optimist by nature, uh, but that is that's a really fundamental one. I I think we've so much else to deal with first, uh, that that that's the nub. That is the nub of it. And I mean, that's why I think we are in the situation. Until, until Brexit, whatever that will be, is sorted. And then we know what it is we're dealing with. I think that's when you have to start to say, well, what is this conversation? At the minute, we don't know what that conversation is. Okay, Aidan McGinley, that's a very good point to finish. Thank you very much indeed.
Okay, a lot of interesting themes coming out of that conversation, Paul. I think one of the strongest ones that's coming through, and I suppose it reflects her connection with Carnegie in particular, is the well-being and mental health uh, conversation that she's really interested in. That's right. And there is this tension contradiction that she points up that actually, according to the Happiness Index, Northern Ireland is a very happy place. Yet we've got the highest levels of the taking of antidepressant drugs, very high levels of suicide. We actually have a mental health crisis. Mm. Yet, you know, weirdly, we're shown us at the top of the Happiness League. Whether that shows, whether it's another reflection of the division within our society, the difference between those people who are happy and those people who are unhappy. Mm. That's one possibility. Another possibility is, well, we're not shooting each other, we're not killing each other, and therefore that's how we say we're happy because we're not actually in the troubles anymore. Uh, So um, again, this definition theme, you know, it's one of those most important things. It's really important what we mean by words and how we understand them. Yeah, yeah. and she said just on the troubles there, the trauma from the trouble seems to be coming back. Absolutely. As we deal with some of these things, even through Stormont House, you know, that actually it brings a lot of these things. And the other point is that a lot of the people who live through the troubles are now coming into old age, no longer working, therefore have more time to think and think about what's happened in their lives, what they've done in their lives. And that creates a, a new trauma for them, a mm. re-traumatization. And the other point, which I think is really important to think about is that we have a society in Northern Ireland that has different structures to it, which is not simply about the split between Protestants and Catholics or Unionists and Nationalists or Republicans. It's Mm -hmm. also about wealth and it's about class. And we see that correlation between wealth and kids going to the best grammar schools. But we also see it in terms of access to counselling services, because if you rely on the NHS because you don't have much in terms of income, there's very long waiting lists, it's very difficult to get to mental health support services and you don't actually have access to them over a sustained period, whereas if you are better off, then you can pay for it privately and you don't have to wait a long time and you get as much as you pay for. Yeah, okay. And Aideen was really strong to you about shared education, um, not necessarily integrated education, but shared education from our own loved and practical experience, I suppose. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. I mean, Aideen is, is much more uh, positive about shared education than some other people are. And perhaps, and this is not something we discussed within the conversation, but perhaps you have to look at the differences between different experiences of shared campuses. And some perhaps work more closely, work better more strongly than others. Mm -hmm. And actually, we have to not simply talk in terms of this phrase about shared education, but actually also talk about the the practical applications, what it really means in practice. Yeah, what it looks like. Yeah, exactly, what it feels like. Yeah, and then the final question around the constitutional uh, matter, Brexit raises his head again, and and Aileen's very strong on... We don't even know what the question is that we're asking you. Yes, I'm not sure that anyone's given us actually a, a, a clear answer to the question about how do we have the constitutional conversation because yeah. people are either explicitly or implicitly saying, well, do we know where we are? And that sort of is the question hanging over Northern Ireland, isn't it, really? Okay. Well, on that 
God knows what's happening <laughs> line. Uh, that's it for this episode of the Forward Together podcast. Keep an eye out for future episodes through hollywelltrust.com and the Slugger Hotel website. So thanks to Aideen for taking the time to have a conversation with us and to our usual production team of Dee Kern and Emer Doherty. Talk to you soon. Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.